When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. If you've got your Bibles or your apps, turn to 1 King, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 22. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 22. Um, last Sunday, I had a really cool opportunity to go back to my old high school. Um, they are tearing Apex High School down to the ground, and they're rebuilding it into basically one big, huge building. And uh, it was a really unique experience to go back uh, through the halls, to go into the locker rooms and the classrooms and athletic fields that I spent four years in my life. And uh, as I was walking through the halls, I was uh, just recalling the teachers that made an indelible mark on my life, Uh, the coaches that invested to edify my character, the friends that made lasting memories with. But I also recalled the girls that broke my heart (laughs) again and again and again, the people that I didn't see eye to eye with, the many disappointments of teenage years. Um, But I intentionally, as I was walking through this space with my children, which was also a very unique experience, um, I intentionally walked into the classrooms um, that I hated the most, (laughs) chemistry and math, (laughs) Uh, two of my least favorite subjects to this day. I've always been a history, a literature, or an arts kind of person. And so for a teenager that only wanted to play football, uh, hang out uh, with friends, had my head in the clouds, uh, chemical compounds and solving linear equations wasn't exactly the most ideal thing for me. Um, And so while I was standing in those classrooms, I actually was chuckling to myself, remembering um, every single thing I didn't learn in those classrooms. (laughs) And some of the words of teachers speaking directly to me, saying, you know, Andy, if you just paid attention, this wouldn't be that complicated. All those memories were flooding back uh, in me. There's times in life, sometimes as we have difficult conversations, sometimes as we think about complicated things, oftentimes it's so difficult to get our minds around. And when it comes to God, sometimes it's complicated. Theology is complicated because God is complicated. Think about this for just a second. What is God's role in the existence of network and time? Which type of atonement theory best fits into our culture and our context? How does Jesus relate to God the Father? How does God the Father relate to the Spirit? How do you explain the Trinity and put into words? What if I told you that sometimes the best answer to some of these complicated questions is, well, it's complicated. God is complicated. Therefore, theology is complicated. And so that's why we've jumped into the series. Two weeks ago, we began this new series called Heretic, Rethinking Our Theological Assumptions. And this is a 12-week conversation where we're creating space to work through some of those difficult aspects of God. Some of those aspects about God that's hard to wrap our minds around, hard to put words around. And again, theology is complicated because God is complicated. And yet, we're told theology matters. Because the way that we see God and the way that we see how God works in the world matters. The way that we see ourselves with that God and relate to that God and how we live in the world in response to that God matters. Theology matters, but theology is complicated. And if we're honest, even our our logical and faith-centered understanding of God cannot even begin to grasp the depth and the magnitude of God's existence. So where do you begin with all this? 
The Nicene Creed, as we read it a couple weeks ago, begins with, we believe in one God. And those few words alone are so loaded and so complicated. So that brings us to our scripture in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 22 through 30. Now to give you some context around the passage we're going into. 1 and 2 Kings is part of 1 and 2 Samuel. It's also 1 and 2 Chronicles. It's like the biblical writers were like, hey, let's lump all the number books together, except for the book of Numbers. We're going to keep that guy completely separate from all these number books. 1 and 2 Kings is a continuation of the kingly narrative of Saul and David and Solomon. It's telling the story of God anointing these first kings of Israel. And the backdrop of this story has immense historical significance. Solomon is going to be standing in the temple to dedicate the temple to God. Now this is a very important moment because everything has been building to this. Remember David said to God, I want to build a house for you. I want to build a temple. And God says to David, no, actually your son's going to do that, but I promise I will make a lasting house, a lasting kingdom through you. And so here is Solomon, finally living into the words that God promised his father before him. Solomon is taking the throne. He has built this exquisite temple. It's taken many years to plan and to build. This is a big day. This is a huge day. And so Solomon gives this big speech in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 22, beginning with this. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands towards heaven and said, Lord, the God of of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promises to your servant David, my father, and with your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. Now, Lord, the God of Israel, keep your servant David, my father, the promises you have made to him when you said, you shall never fail to have a successor to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your descendants are careful in all that they do to walk before me faithfully as you have done. And now, God of Israel, let your words that you have promised your servant David, my father, come true. Verse 27, here's the key verse. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet given attention to your servant's prayer and plea for mercy, Lord my God. You see, the magnitude of this moment is so great. This is so much hype leading to this moment. The scripture tells us that all of Israel gathered at the temple on this day. So we get this image that thousands of people are here. The temple is packed. The temple was the central piece of their worship and their service to God. Here they would bring offerings to God. Here they would bring a tie to God. Here the multitudes of their brokenness and bad choices would be washed clean with the sacrifice of a perfect lamb. Here it was a great moment of significance. It was a great moment where God is no longer dwelling in this tabernacle, in this tent outside the city. But here they have built this place where God's presence will dwell among them. And the final touch, the cherry on top of the cake, if you will. Though I've never really had a cake with a cherry. The cherry on top of the the ice cream, that makes more sense. Was that in the Holy of Holies they would bring this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. This thing they believed contained the presence of God. So this was a sacred space. 
This was an important moment. Here Solomon is lifting these words. He's, he's almost reciting his family story. He's almost reciting Israel's story, talking about what God had promised through them to bring them to this moment, what God had promised his family. And yet Solomon asks a very difficult theological question. Did you catch it in verse 27? God, can you dwell on earth? Can you even be contained in the heavens, let alone this temple? You see, Solomon is asking a difficult theological question. It's his understanding that God is beyond measure. God is beyond location. That God is beyond anything that we can put into words. A few weeks back, NASA broke news. Astronomers found that there's at least seven Earth-like planets uh, orbiting a, a star that's 40 light years away. And this is a discovery that outside of our solar system is so rare to find a planet that actually could model Earth. Now, the hope is, obviously, years and generations down the road that if you needed to inhabit another planet, you could, but they simply want to take the next few years to study it to see how much like our planet it is. But though, if you think about it, 40 light years away doesn't seem very far, but that's like really, really far. Uh, I listened to a, a lecture recently by an astrophysicist. That sounds like such a dorky thing to do, sorry. I was listening to a lecture recently by an astrophysicist. Uh, and it was, it was really fascinating. And he says that it takes um, light 1.28 seconds to travel. Think about that for a second. So it takes light 1.28 seconds to travel from the Earth to the moon. We're roughly 186,000 miles apart from the moon. Uh, he said that it takes uh, time to travel between the sun and the earth. Time takes eight minutes. So let's just know this. It would take eight minutes for us to know that the sun like burned out and imploded. Like we would, eight minutes we'd know and then we'd all like die. Okay, so like let's just know. It says it'd take 152 million miles to travel to the sun. That's a long, stinking way. If you were to drive your car at highway speed, um, depending on what that is for you, um, it would take you roughly 6,000 years to take that trip from the earth to the sun. Think about that for just a second. And so they're saying that 40 light years away is another galaxy and other planets. Think of the magnitude of the size and scope of what we're talking about here. That it would take us years upon years upon years to even consider traveling a light year to something, let alone 40 light years away. The galaxy, our galaxy, is just a blip in the map of the entire scope of other galaxies. And yet, we claim to have faith in a God who created all that. Let that settle in for just a second. That as far as it takes for us to travel from the earth to the moon, the earth to the sun, as far as it is the nine million light years it would take to travel across our galaxy, that there is a being much larger than that. Try to put a cosmic God into words. You can't. 
We can begin to try to, but it's so difficult. And so the Bible tries to put words together. The Bible talks about that God is a sovereign God, meaning God is the ruler of the universe. God is having uh, known all the right things, the authority, the power to govern all things in accordance to God's will. God has the right to achieve God's purpose and will and power. God is sovereign. It's unimaginable. At times, it is absolutely impossible to put into words that kind of God. William P. Young and his masterpiece, The Shack, that's recently been made into a movie. It's a tremendous narrative. It's a heartbreaking and fulfilling narrative. Yet at the central piece of this book is a dialogue um, between this man and God. Where he's trying to get in his mind this unimaginable God. And there's this great dialogue between the characters in which God says this. I am what some would say is holy and other than you. The problem is that many folks try to grasp some sense of who I am by taking the best versions of themselves, projecting that to the ninth degree, factoring in all the goodness they can perceive, which often isn't much, and then they call that God. And while it may seem like a noble effort, the truth is that it all falls pitifully short of who I really am. I am not merely the best version of you that you can think of. I am far more than that, above and beyond all that you can ask or think. You see, for a human mind, we cannot faithfully put into perspective and put into words a cosmic God. It's simply unimaginable. 2017, I think, is going to go down as the year that I go broke from going to the movie theater. Um, from Stephen King's The Dark Tower series that's coming out to Beauty and the Beast that already came out from Blade Runner 2049 to six amazing superhero movies that are coming out this year. Did I mention Star Wars The Last Jedi? This will be a year of all epic movies. And I've always been a lover of movies. I can tell you every single movie I've ever seen before. Jennifer, I have this ongoing argument about my, some movie that she thinks I've seen. I promise, never seen it. She thinks I've seen it. I know every movie I've ever seen. And I'm the kind of guy that if you were to ask, you what my, ask me what my favorite movie of all time is, my response is going to be, okay, what specific genre are we talking about? You can't pick one movie out of all the movies and say this is the end-all be-all. How do you compare uh, the fantasy of Lord of the Rings to the drama of The Godfather? How do you have the humor of the idiot and compare that to the science fiction of E.T.? How do you take the social implications of To Kill a Mockingbird and try to compare that to the groundbreaking work of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho? You see, a good movie entertain you, entertains you. A brilliant movie invites you into the story. You ever finish a movie and you forget, oh, I was sitting in a movie theater this whole time. Like, I completely forgot that I was in this story. You see, there's nothing more annoying to watch than someone who lacks imagination. You ever sit next to somebody during a movie and they're like, that's just not believable. Well, I'm sorry, your mind isn't sharp enough for you to think unimaginably about things in this world. So try to sit next to somebody with no imagination as they watch Inception or Big Fish or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind or 2001 Space Odyssey and, oh, that, that's so not true. It could never happen. Okay. Be quiet. <laughs> Albert Einstein once said, a true sign of intelligence is not knowledge, but imagination. I want us to consider for just a second how often our understanding of God lacks imagination. And the reason is, is that we try to put God into a box. We like things in clean and neat boxes, don't we? Because we like our life in boxes. 
we have our box of work, our box of worldview, our, our box of love, our, our box of our children. If we put our children into a box sometimes. I, I didn't say that. You said that. I didn't say that. <laughs> Okay, how do, this is going out on the internet. Uh, I did not mean I want to put my child in a box, but we like to have our children in a box compartmentalized, neat and clean. That's what I meant. You all heard that? We all heard that. Future generations, we heard that, okay? We like things in a box. So why would we not try to put our understanding of God in a box? And it shows that we lack an imagination because God is complicated. Now, are there aspects that God has made known to us that we need to understand and we need to see? Yes, God has made that true through things like scripture, through, through revelation to us, that God has made God's self known in certain ways. But are there aspects of God that are beyond our imagination? Yes. God is constantly revealing God's self in beautiful and new ways to try to understand God fully. We need to stop trying to cram God into a box and begin to open our soul to a deeper imagination. Or in the words of Tom Hardy from that great movie Inception, you mustn't be afraid to dream bigger, darling. <laughs> I can't do a British accent. I wasn't even going to try. As early as the 1500s, it was widely accepted belief that the universe revolved around the earth. Why? The Bible says so. The Bible says that the universe revolves around the earth. And in 1514, Nicholas Copernicus completed his work. It was a 40-page manuscript in which he summarized his helocentric planetary system and alluded to the forthcoming mathematical formulas meant to serve as proof. In other words, what Nicholas Copernicus says in 1514 is, um, everything doesn't revolve around the earth. Everything revolves around the sun. And his ideas were so revolutionary that the church condemned him as a heretic and ostracized him. In fact, he died at 70 years old and he was buried in an unmarked tomb. It sounds so silly nowadays for us to think about it because we know that the earth revolves around the sun. But at the time that Nicholas Copernicus is, is teaching this idea, his, his ideas undermined the authority of the church, his willingness to imagine a universe that was more complex than, than we can come to understand put his life in danger. And it wasn't until the year 2010 that the church exhumed his body, blessed it with holy water, buried him as a hero and as a saint. All because his imagination was bigger than what we could understand at the time. And so this aspect of God that is so complicated that, that it requires somewhat of an imagination from us is this, that God is not three gods, but God is one God in three parts. We get this idea that God is a triune God, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three parts. To understand that fully about God requires us to have a great imagination, to go beyond the capacity of our own understanding of life. The actual word Trinity is not found within Scripture, but Scripture does emphasize all three God in parts. Think about Jesus recognized the three-part nature of God in his final speech in Matthew chapter 28 when he told them to go, therefore, into the world to make disciples, baptizing them in the what? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Paul brings attention to the Trinity in 1 Corinthians when he says, the grace of Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. 
most of us have at least claimed some sort of foundational understanding of the Trinity, the formation of the theological assumption that God is one God in three parts took many years for the church to agree upon. And it's one of the most important, if not the most essential understanding of who God is. Defining the Trinity gives us a holistic understanding of how we understand God to be at work in this world. Now, some churches might emphasize uh, the Son more than the Holy Spirit and the Father. Some churches forget that there is this thing called the Holy Spirit. Some churches way emphasize the Holy Spirit, forgetting the Father and the Son. Yet what Scripture teaches us is that God and all three persons matters. And the thing that the Trinity teaches us most important about God is that God is relational. Here is God. One God in three parts that is a holistic community. Think about that for just a second. You might have someone teach you a biblical narrative that God is lonely, and out of God, God's loneliness, God had to create in order to feel like he wasn't alone. Actually, the Trinity is one God in three parts, perfect unity, a relational God, a community unto God's own self. But what it does teach us is that God is a relational God. Before the world was created, before everything was put into place, here is a unified God. It was God, the Spirit, that hovered above the primordial waters of creation. The the scripture says that God, Ruah, breathed life into existence. It is the incarnational God, the physical and spiritual embodiment of God that we see in Jesus Christ, who is born among us to teach us a new way of being human. Jesus is the direct manifestation and personification of God. The great Spirit of God is this mysterious counsel. The the Word uh, of God says that God is, the Spirit of God is like a wind of power, like breath of life. You see, the Trinity teaches us that God is not aloof, that God is not impersonal, but that God is revealed in history, that God is present with us. Probably St. Patrick best put it this way in this beautiful prayer, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left. When I lie down, Christ is with me, Christ when I sit down, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in my mouth for everyone who speaks of me, Christ in the eyes that see me, Christ in the ears near me. See, God is complex. The triune God is complex. And so what do we gather from this? Why are we going on about all these theological understandings of God? Because at the end of the day, theology doesn't matter as simply as a belief. Theology matters as it invites us into something new. And I think what the Trinity teaches us is simply this. That God is inviting us to know God intimately. God desires for us to know God first and foremost. In this journey of knowing God, we more intimately begin to see the dynamic complexity of God's nature and the invitation of God to follow God into life. Here is a a cosmic God, a God who has and has created everything, and yet this God wants community with us. And I think that's what Solomon was trying to capture in his words. Here's Solomon standing in the magnitude of this moment in the temple, and he's recitating this, this important narrative that happened in his life. And, and, and in the scripture, he, he, he offers this prayer to God because he knows that God is more than just this cosmic existence. That God is a God who intimately hears the words of our prayers. 
Solomon wanted God to make God's presence and nature known to him, to all the nations. And I think at the root of theology is not a pursuit of knowing how to explain God for who God is and how God functions in the world, but it's our soul's desire to know God more intimately. And the Trinity teaches us that God is communal and God is relational. The Spirit of God gives us strength, increases our faith, brings transformation into our lives. The Spirit of God teaches us that God is present with us always. The Son gives us a living example of a better way of being human. The Son of God teaches us that God loves us so much that God is willing to endure the cross for our sake. The Father gives us a beautiful image of our Creator, creating new life and breathing life into existence. God the Father teaches us the promise that that are made are promises that are kept. The triune God teaches us that God is present in our world and that God loves us beyond measure. But the question I want us to ask ourselves this morning is this. Does our understanding of the triune God motivate our journey with God? Does our understanding of the triune God motivate our journey with God? You see, theology standalone by itself, philosophy by itself, if it is not accompanied by a transformation of how we live as a result, it's meaningless. It's worthless. Does your understanding of God change the way you live each day? Getting back to 1 Kings, this is at the heart of Solomon's asking. He's, he's built this grandiose temple. He's, he's brought these symbolic images and objects of God here. He's dedicated this place to a deeper understanding of worship. And yet, and yet he realizes that God is so much bigger than what he could put into words. That's why Solomon asked God for more understanding, more wisdom. His complexity and mystery of God spurred him on to a deeper journey with God. Does our neglect of our understanding of God prevent a more dynamic journey? I'll share a story with you in closing. Jeffrey Brown is a, is a Baptist minister in Boston. Uh, at the age of 25, uh, Jeffrey was the pastor of his first church. And like many of his colleagues, Jeffrey dreamed of one day being a pastor of a megachurch with 15,000 to 20,000 members. He wanted a TV ministry. He wanted a clothing line. He wanted a private jet. And it didn't take long for him to build this up because he was gaining members in his congregation. But then something really unexpected happened. Um, in a span of a year, 73 young people were murdered in a few square miles of his church in Boston. And of course, he was invited to funerals and he joined community action groups to talk about what could change. He worked alongside the police and, and, and policing neighborhoods and bringing neighborhood lockdowns and after school programs. But, but the thing is, none of it worked. And people were scared to come out of their homes. They weren't going to let their kids play in the streets. But he got in his pulpit on Sunday and he preached against words of violence. And then he would drive straight through the neighborhood to his house of comfort. And one night, um, a young man was shot just feet away from the church. He bled out right in front of the church. And Jeffrey couldn't shake it. And so he had a dream one night, and in the dream he said that Jesus appeared to him wearing an orange suit, a red shirt, and a purple tie. That sounds like a really awesome get-up, like when you say it out loud. 
not going to wear that next Sunday. Though. And he showed Jeffrey his extravagant office, and then he led him to his Mercedes Benz, where they drove to this big old mansion. And Jesus turned to Jeffrey and said, What do you think? And Jeffrey answered, It's a lot. Jeffrey said, Then Jesus looked at him and said, Is this really me? And then he woke up. And he didn't just dream this once. He said he dreamed it again and again until he got the message. That God was inviting him to change the way he was living his life. To change the way he was following Christ. To change the way that he was pastoring this church. And he said that immediately what began to happen was the clashing of two paradoxes. The paradox of the way he thought he would live his life and the paradox of how what was happening within his community. He said his first inclination was just to invite more people into the process, to have more committee meetings, more team meetings, more group action meetings within the community. He said, but, but that wasn't going to work. What he felt being, himself being called to by the Spirit of God was to take action. Was to not just have a committee meeting, but instead be present in the community. He said on Sunday that he was preaching for a more beautiful community, a peaceful community, but he realized that in this community he was talking about, he was living out the drug dealers and the gangbangers who were killing all these people. And so he said he felt the Spirit of God convicting him to move away from this mansion idea of ministry and to move to the streets. And so at night, he would go out and walk the streets. And he would get to know the drug dealers. He would get to know the gang members and know them by name and to hear their stories and to hear why they were out there and why their lives were full of violence. He got to know the people around him. He was the presence of Christ in this community. And then he began to invite other people into this process. And in a period of about eight years, the crime rate in Boston dropped 79%, beginning in his community. You see, he believed that Christ was calling him out of comfort into action. He believed that the Spirit of God was empowering him to have great faith and bring about transformation. And this story shocks me to my core. And so it gets us thinking, how are we living in response to who God is? Are we willing to live into the nature of God? God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Are we willing to join God into this beautiful community that is the Trinity, this community centered on beauty and love? A cosmic God is inviting you to know God. A cosmic God is inviting you to bring about cosmic transformation in this world. Does your theology move you to act? Let's pray together. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.